Okay, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. As I've indicated before, the last couple sermons were more densely packed than the typical sermon. I was up here with uh, <laughs> many, many pieces of paper. I, want, I, I wanted to, to write, completely write out the last two sermons because it was so information heavy and I wanted to be very precise. And this morning, I just got one paper. So I'm not going to be, uh, not going to be flipping. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to clap. It's, you know, it, it is what it is. But, um, but it, 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 is, it, is, uh, it is good to not be quite so intellectually intense, um, even though we want to have our thinking caps on, we want to engage with the Word of God, with our mind, as well as with our heart, so that we can understand what the Lord is saying and so that we can be transformed by His words. And so, I'm going to go ahead and read Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37, and then we will dive in. Holy Scripture says, beginning at Mark 13, verse 32, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the Word of God, and it is for our good. I've titled this sermon, Stay Awake, because in the, at least in the English Standard Version Bible that I'm using, the phrase stay awake occurs three times, and keep awake occurs Another time in verse 33, so stay awake seems like a fitting title for the message. Unlike verses 1 through 30, which were about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that took place in the first century, this, these last six verses are about the Lord's return at the end of history. Now, I don't just want to tell you that and expect you to take my word for it. I, I want to I say a few things to give you some reasons why I think that. So, let me, give you, let me give you four reasons why I believe that this last section of Mark chapter 13 has to do with the return of the Lord at the end of history. First of all, th there's a there's a, a change in subject matter. The, the theme of the earlier part of the chapter, verses 1 through 30, are, are captured in verse 2, 
when Jesus says there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then my paraphrase of the disciples' question to Jesus in verse 4 is, when will the temple be destroyed and what will be the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed? And then in verses 5 through 30, Jesus answers that question. But here, in verses 32 to 37, there's a different subject matter. Look at verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey. It's a, it's a parable, but it's a parable that, that is a, it's a window into the relationship between the Lord and His people. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. So the point is, there's going to be a time at some point in the future when the Lord returns to His house, as it were, when the Lord returns to His people, when the Lord returns to this world. So the the subject matter is different. A second reason is that there was a time marker that Jesus gave us in verses 28 through 30, right? Jesus said in verse 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. By the way, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but that, that phrase, he is near, it, 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 it could be translated he is near, but it could also be translated it is near, and I think that it is near makes more sense in the context because Jesus is talking about something that is going to happen uh, while some of his contemporaries are still alive, as we see in verse 30, and what he's been talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem. So it says, when you see these things taking place, when you see the, the signs and the events unfolding that Jesus had talked about in the earlier part of the chapter, when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That, that, is, that phrase, verse 30, it's like a punctuation marker in terms of time. Everything that I've been talking about up until this point, it's going to happen. While some of you who Jesus is speaking in in about the year 30 AD, some of you who are alive at the time that I am speaking these things are going to still be alive when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And of course, that's what happened. But there's, there's, there's no... There's no time marker in verses 32 to 37. Now we are beyond the time marker of it's going to happen within, within this generation. Now you don't know when the time will come, right? Therefore stay awake, verse 35, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. So that's the second reason. We're, we're, we're outside of the time marker, and that leads right into a third reason. Jesus taught us in verses 1 to 30 
that the destruction of the temple would be preceded by identifiable signs, right? The logic of verses 28 through 30 is you do know the time, roughly, you know the approximate time when the temple is going to be destroyed because you're going to have the abomination of desolation in verse 14 and then tribulation is going to ramp up. Things are going to get really bad. You're going to, you're going to recognize this. You're going to know that it's coming. You see? So, so the, the destruction of Jerusalem was preceded by certain identifiable signs that Jesus expected the disciples to see. But guess what? In verses 32 to 37... The Lord's return is not preceded by any signs. This is really important to understand because the logic of verses 1 to 30 is pay attention because you will know the approximate time of Jerusalem's downfall. The logic of verses 32 to 37 is always be ready because you do not know the time of the Lord's return. You see? Let me give a little example here, a little segue. Suppose uh, an administrator comes to his teaching staff and says, I'm going to come next Monday morning from 9 to 11 a.m. and I'm going to, uh, uh, well, to one particular teacher, I'm going I'm to observe your three morning classes on Monday, September 27th, okay? The teacher knows in advance the day and the hour. What do they do? Well, I can't speak for every teacher. There's some really good teachers out there. Some teachers, though, it's time to get really, really professional, really prepared, really orderly, because they know that the administrator is going to be there on Monday morning to observe their class. But suppose the administrator said this. Uh, teachers, at various unannounced and undisclosed times throughout the year, without any warning, I'm going to come and sit in your class and observe your work. Now, in that, if, that's, if that's the case, the mindset of the teacher ought to be, I ought to always be ready, always be doing my best, because I don't know the day or the hour when the administrator is going to come and observe my teaching. Do you understand? Always be ready, because you don't know the time. That's the logic of verses 32 to 37. So the theme has changed. Verses 32 to 37 are, are beyond, they're, they're outside of the time marker, they're, they're after the time marker of verse 30, and unlike the signs that preceded the destruction of Jerusalem, there are no signs preceding the Lord's return. Now here's the fourth reason. Throughout the New Testament, there are references to the day, that day. You see that here in verse 32, but concerning that day. And, and that day 
is almost always a reference to the final day of judgment that will take place at the end of history in conjunction with the Lord's return. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn, turn with me because I want you to see a few passages where this phrase, that day, comes in. Then we'll come back to Mark 13. Okay, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. says, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That day is a day of judgment. Turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Romans chapter 2. Actually, I'll start reading in verse 15, just so you get a little bit of the, so you get the whole sentence. Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That day connected to God's judgment. Turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. And then turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is a beautiful passage where Paul recounts what he's anticipating as his earthly sojourn comes to an end. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So that day points forward to the time when all of humanity will be gathered before the Lord. And there will be a, a final judgment and separation. Some being sent away into the outer darkness and others being rewarded and welcomed into the presence of God for all eternity. So, th th so, th so those four reasons, uh, among some others, lead me to the conclusion that verses 32 to 37 are about the return of the Lord at the end of history when he comes to judge humanity. Now, 
clearly the, the primary exhortation of these verses has to do with your spiritual attentiveness, right? Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. And then verse 35, therefore stay awake. And verse 37, stay awake. The idea is to be awake, alert, attentive, spiritually tuned in, focused and faithful, vigilant and watchful. Always being ready for the Lord's return. And so, with that idea of of staying awake being the, the primary exhortation of the passage, I want to give you four ways, four different ways, they're all complementary and they work together, four different ways uh, of staying awake, four things to think about that would help you to stay awake in your walk with the Lord. So here's the first one. Stay awake by always remembering your Lord. Look at verse 34 again. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now, what? just, just entering into the world of, world of that parable, what is the most important duty of the servants and the doorkeeper? The most important duty is for them to remember the man of the house, because it's his house. He's the one who gave them the charge to do this task or that task. They, they must remember him, first of all. And so, stay awake by always remembering your Lord. Remember his character. Remember his mission. His love, His sacrifice. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, as we saw earlier in Mark's Gospel. Remember His compassion. Always taking time to minister to the brokenhearted. Remember His authority, commanding demons and diseases and storms and even the dead calling them back to life. Remember His exaltation. As I talked about last week, I, I don't think that Jesus' is coming in verse 26 is His coming back, but rather from Daniel chapter 7, that His, his coming in, in the clouds in verse 26 is His coming before the Ancient of Days to be exalted and to be entrusted with sovereign authority over the whole earth. And so remember, remember what Jesus said before He ascended into heaven. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Me. This is the One who is seated at the right hand of God. Remember, Remember His words. But what does it say in verse 31? Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. You know, it's interesting. One, one helpful way 
of, of, of letting this instruction sink in might be to, to reflect on that phrase, pass away. Because earlier in the chapter, Jesus has essentially said, the temple will pass away. And it did. Here, in verse 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away. Similarly, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, we are told that the world and its desires are passing away. But here's the question. What about you? Are you going to pass away? Or are you going to abide forever? That's the question. 1 John 2.17, the whole verse says, the world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. How do you know the will of God? Right here. The words of Jesus. The way to not pass away is to build your life on the one whose words will not pass away. You see that at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. The, the wise man who builds his house on the rock, the wise man is the one who hears the words of Jesus and does them. He's, he's building his life on the Lord Jesus Christ and on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always remember your Lord. Second, second aspect of staying awake. Stay awake by always giving yourself to the work the Lord has assigned to you. Again, this, is, this idea is tucked away in verse 34 where the man who left to go on a journey, he put his servants in charge and gave each of his servants a particular task and he commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. You have you have work to do. You, one of the worst things that you can do for your spiritual life is to meander aimlessly through the day. That is a really bad idea. Whether you're a child, a youth, in the middle of life, or retired, it's a bad idea, bad idea to meander aimlessly through the day. Someone has said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. That's how you get yourself into trouble. You have work to do. This idea of staying awake in, in, the, in the parable, the doorkeeper, his, his job literally is to, is to stay awake at the door looking out, waiting for the hour of his master's return, and then he opens the door and lets the master in. That's, that's the parable, okay? But when you translate that into everyday life, you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to keep vigil on your flat roof, looking up to the sky 24-7, waiting for the Lord to come back. That, that's not how it translates, You stay awake by doing the work that he's given you to do. You, you have work to do as a husband or as a wife, as a father or mother, grandfather, grandmother, child. 
grandchild. You have work to do as a member of the body of Christ. You have, you have work to do in whatever business or employment you are engaged in. You have work to do within your extended family and your network of relationships. And of course, the, the heart of that work are the kinds of instructions that Jesus has been giving us throughout the Gospel of Mark. You're to, you're to, you're to represent the Lord Jesus Christ at all times, wherever you are. You are, you are His. He said in Mark chapter 8 to, to, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him, to lay down your life for His sake and the Gospel's sake. Always representing Him, whatever you say and whatever you do, doing it or saying it on His behalf in order to influence others, your children, your relatives, your neighbors, your co-workers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, in order to influence others to become or to grow as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always give yourself to the work that the Lord has assigned you. Never abandon your post. Never fall asleep. Never get sloppy. But be diligent to follow the Lord's call upon your life. Number three, stay awake by always practicing the presence of Jesus. Now, this is really just a, a practical way of combining the first two points. But let me explain it this way. I, I really, I want my children to practice the presence of dad. Here's what I mean. I come to my children and I give them instruction. And I want them to be transformed in such a way that when I walk away, I'll go to a different part of the house or occupy myself with some other task, that as far as they're concerned, Dad's presence looms large upon them and my words hold sway and they put those words into practice. I don't have to physically be present because I have spoken and my words have gone forth and that carries them to put them into practice. We had a long ways to go on that, practicing the presence of dad. But, um, but that is what we're called to do as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, 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 uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how when he, he speaks in this world, it's as if he is speaking in the sight of God. Paul told slaves in Colossians, he said, work diligently for your earthly masters, not only when their eye is upon you. You see, that's what we do. Oh, dad's not around. Boss isn't around. Administrator's not coming today. We get a little, little sloppy, procrastinate, shoddy workmanship. But Paul says, 
Forget about whether your boss is present or not. Work heartily as unto the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Called to, to practice the presence of Jesus. What we, are, what we are doing here, we all understand. Or hopefully most of us understand that what we're doing here, we're, we're doing this in the presence of God. But the thing is, you sit down this afternoon and turn on the football game. Saints, Patriots, or whoever else you want to watch, or whatever else you do today, that's just as much happening and taking place in the sight of God. Practice the presence of Jesus. He is, he is, he is physically absent, but you must understand that He is spiritually present through His Holy Spirit. And the question is, are you aware of His presence? Because if, in, in the parable, if, if the ideal situation is that that doorkeeper or any of, that, any of those servants in the house, they, they, they feel the reality of the master of the house even though he's gone on a long journey. They remember him. They remember his instructions. And that man and his words hold sway in their hearts. And that's how it is to be with us, that the Lord Jesus Christ, our exalted King, and His words which will never pass away are always holding sway in our day-to-day lives and our day-to-day decisions. Finally, and really most pointedly and emphatically from this passage, this is, this is what I'm about to tell you is the main thing, the primary thing. Stay awake by always anticipating your appointment with Jesus on the last day. Stay awake by always anticipating your appointment with Jesus on the last day. That's, that's, really, that's really the point here. Frankly, most Christians throughout history, will not actually be physically alive at the time that the Lord returns, right? I mean, we've got 2,000 years of, of faithful followers of Jesus who are dead. The, 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 issue, the, the primary issue isn't so much that, you, that you're alive when He returns, though you might be, you never know. Maybe, you're, maybe, maybe He will return soon. We don't know. No one knows except the Father. But the point is to live in such a way that when He does come and when all the peoples of the world throughout all time are gathered before Him for judgment, that you will have lived in such a way that meets with His approval when He comes. You see, sometimes when people talk about being ready for the Lord's return, we, we, we talk about it as if we're talking about, you know, getting your estate papers in order. You know, have you, have you, have you, have you got the documents right and have you signed off on them and, you know, everything's good, you're good to go. Being ready for the Lord's return is not at all just a matter of 
at some point in the past, having received him, or supposedly received him as your Lord and Savior. Being ready is to be be constantly awake and always living in the reality that he's going to come and you're going to stand before him. And uh, if you you look at, uh, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 24 and all of Matthew chapter 25 really expand what Mark is telling us in verses 32 to 37. Okay, your, 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 your eternal well-being is tied to whether or not you are awake or asleep, spiritually awake or spiritually asleep. And you can see the different ways that it's described in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Are you awake or are you asleep? Are you obedient and faithful or are you unfaithful and disobedient? Have you demonstrated love for Jesus by caring for his people, especially his suffering people, or have you not demonstrated love for Jesus? Those who are awake and faithful and obedient and demonstrated love, however imperfectly we do that, but that's the path you're on, then you are received into the heavenly kingdom. But to those who are asleep, unfaithful, disobedient, unloving, they're cast into the outer darkness. It may help to think about it this way. Uh, I learned this from a friend of mine who I think got it from the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther several hundred years ago. But here's, here's the thought. There are only two days that matter. If I were to ask you, what are the, what are the two days that matter most? I, I I wonder what you'd say. You want to know what Mark Twain said? Or supposedly said? Mark Twain said, the two most important days are the day you were born and the day you discover why. Well, there's some wisdom in that. But Martin Luther did better. Okay? There are only two days that matter. Today and that day. They're the only two days that matter. You can't do anything about yesterday. Yesterday is done and over. And the Apostle Paul says, forget what lies behind, but strain forward to what lies ahead. Tomorrow, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow may never come. It's never tomorrow, you know. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today, has enough troubles of its own. Today, today is the only day that you can be awake. Today is the only way that you can be faithful. Today is the only day that you can lay down your life for Jesus or for his people. Today is the only day when you can sow gifts or resources or energy into the work of God's kingdom. You can only do it today. And you should always do it today in light of that day when the Lord will examine you, when the Lord will examine the quality of your heart, your life, and your work. It's weighty, but it also brings simplicity. Because you know how crazy it is to be constantly caught up in trying to please other people? 
You only have to have one person's approval, and that is the Lord's. If you have the Lord's approval, nothing else matters because you'll be vindicated when you stand before Him on Judgment Day. If you do not have the Lord's approval, nothing else matters because you will be cast away on Judgment Day. Two questions. Number one, for you, practical application. Are, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? A person is not saved by their faithfulness and obedience, but here's the thing. Faithfulness and obedience and love demonstrate, it demonstrates that you knew and trusted and loved the Lord. And in the absence, in the, in the ongoing absence of growth in faithfulness and obedience and love, that demonstrates that you do not know and love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Are, are you ready? Do, do, do you love Him? Do you trust Him? Are you walking in His ways? You will keep your appointment with Jesus on the last day. Are you ready? Secondly, to those who are seeking to follow Jesus, is there, is there something in your life that's getting in the way? It's, there's something in your life that's, that's, that's causing you to do the equivalent of falling asleep. Getting, getting sloppy, getting off the path. And if so, what are you going to do about it? If you're asleep, you'll say something like, I'll get to that tomorrow. I know I've got, I've, I've got I've to I've get my life reordered, but maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe at a more convenient time. That is the voice of sleepiness. The voice of being awake, being spiritually awake and alert is today. Today is the day. Today is the day of faith. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of growing closer to the Lord. Today is the day to take steps of obedience. Because today is the only day you have. Brothers and sisters, live today in light of that day. Let's pray. Father, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Father, I pray that there would be a, a weightiness, but also a joy, an anticipation, a simplicity that we would live, strive, love, labor, for the approval of one, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.